When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, one of the things I've learned in this period of working from home is that I actually love checking in with friends and coworkers and hearing about what they're up to and what they're enthusiastic about. I love culture and art and film, but I have a lot of blind spots. And sometimes I blame this on having two young kids. Like there's a lot from the last decade I've missed out on and I count on my coworkers to kind of fill that in. And I definitely sense that if I had worked with you between 2013 and 2019, one of those things I would have been urged to catch up on is The Americans, a show that I have to confess I have never seen. You would definitely have heard about the show from me. I wrote a bunch about it from the beginning, and then I hosted The Americans Insider podcast for three seasons, which meant that I spent a lot of time down in Gowanus talking to the showrunners and the writers and crew members and actors, one of whom was Alison Wright, who played Martha in that show, a heartbreak of a character. And Alison was kind of a late bloomer. She was in her mid-30s when she landed The Americans, and that was her first TV role, and she was 40 when she made her Broadway debut in 2017. The next year, she did Shakespeare in the Park, playing Amelia in Othello. And she's just really charming. She's a great interview, in my experience. The Americans is what helped make you an Alison Wright fan. And right now you have Snowpiercer. Yeah. Snowpiercer, the television show, began life as Snowpiercer, the movie. It did. Uh, so this TV show, which premieres on May 17th, is based on Bong Joon-ho's 2013 movie of the same name, which itself is based on a French graphic novel from the early 1980s. The TV show takes this same premise but gives it an entirely different spin. It's not the same story. It's the same setting. It's the same idea. But um, if you've seen the movie, you will not be watching something you already saw. And the story is that there is a train circling the globe. It has a thousand and one cars and all of humanity is surviving inside of this train. That's exactly right. This is, that is also the premise of the TV show. Um, but from that starting point, they take it in a different direction from the movie. Well, I'm personally very proud of myself for actually having seen that movie, because like I mentioned, I have a lot of blind spots. And now after hearing you talk about Allison, I'm very excited to watch the show. This is the kind of insight that I'm missing in all of our social distances, <laughs> running into somebody like you and hearing like, oh, you've got to watch this. So I'm very excited to listen to this conversation. the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. 
I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So my excuse for talking to you today is your role in the new TNT series Snowpiercer, which premieres on May 17th and is based on Bong Joon-ho's 2013 movie. We'll talk about the show in a minute. But I know from Instagram that you've been in British Columbia for a long time. Is that because of Snowpiercer? Well, we shoot here in Vancouver and... um Yes, I've been here for a while now, and uh, I'm hanging out here for a little bit longer to avoid coming home to New York for a little while. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll be coming home soon, but just this is literally one of the most beautiful places that I've ever spent time. So I'm quite happy to just hang out here for a little while till I feel <laughs> like, you know, it's a bit less crazy at home. I'm very curious about the, the way that you shoot the series, because... You know, it's it's about life on a train that just keeps circling and never stops as a thousand and one cars long. Um, how how do you actually shoot it? Um, they have four stages up here. It's incredible. And they have different bits of the train in all of those stages. Um, some of the sets are just a little corridor or some are a couple of cars linked together. And some are even a huge section of the length of the train that's like four or five cars long. So you can peg it down there. You can really run and you're (laughs) running like, you know, for a good while and you can see all the way down the cars to way, way in the far in the distance, which is, you know, the best to work with. So you really feel like, you know, and I'm sure, you know, it looks amazing. Um, So there's different bits of the train all over these four massive stages and they do this rather cruel thing as well for some reason and move them around sometimes. <laughs> so it is impossible to know where you're going and to find the right bit of the train that you're looking for to shoot on because mm. they're always building different cars, you know, and repurposing certain cars. Yeah. So it's a constantly moving, changing thing. Um, okay. The sets are, yeah, phenomenal. You know, keeps you focused, I guess. Keeps you guessing. Mix it up. Or just lost and frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One or the other. So, as I mentioned earlier, um, the 
new TV version is based on the movie, but there are quite a few differences. Your character isn't quite the same as any of the people in the movies, is it? Um, tell me about Ruth. Who is she? Ruth is fantastic. I love Ruth. Yes. There are no characters that are directly lifted from the film or the graphic novels. Mm. Um, it's all an amalgamation and a, a sort of reimagining, very much within the same world, of course, mm. but there's no direct transplants from either version of the story into ours. My character, Ruth, has a lot, for those the fans of the film, has quite a few similarities with Minister Mason, which was the character that Tilda Swinton played in the mm. movie, but is very much her own person, too. Um, she works in the hospitality department. She is primarily responsible for taking care of passengers and making sure everything runs smoothly, whatever that entails. Um, Jennifer Connolly's character is called Melanie Cavill, and she is the head of hospitality. And Ruth, you know, of course, Jennifer is, as Melanie, is this cool, calm and collected perfect face of beauty and grace of hospitality and Ruth is the shadow side of that sanctimonious by nature (laughs) and uh, believes in following the rules and believes in the need for order of course when we start the show where we pick up we're seven years in Mm. and I think things have been going pretty well for Ruth before that things have been smooth Mm-hmm. especially in the in the first half of the train anyway. And I the think, first uh, class and the second class cars. Yeah. Well, really, it's everywhere except the tail. Yeah. It's everywhere except the part of the train where there weren't supposed to be any people. You know, that. so that the having the tail on the train has uh, disrupted that status quo. And when mm-hmm. we start the story, there's a big event that happens that really disrupts that status quo in a way that they haven't known in all of these seven years. And so she's thrown into a real tiz right from the beginning. (laughs) Uh, When Graham Manson, our showrunner, first pitched the character to me, he described her as being um, insecure, easily flustered, sanctimonious, but funny. (laughs) So those were all fantastic descriptors for me to run with yeah. and uh, and she's a lot of fun to play. Now I know from having spoken with you before about when you did The Americans when you were on Broadway that and when you did Feud uh, on FX that you really you really enjoy the preparation for a role mm. like finding the specific personality of this character. Mm. What did you do for Ruth? Well this was a, a real gift the way that Graham presented this character to me because originally in the um, we've had two sort of versions of this show mm. um, and in the the prior version I was a different character completely oh so when Graham came to pitch me this new character that he would like me to play he really gave in a way that's never happened before he gave me the tenets of her personality like I said earlier, that she's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. very easily flustered, highly strong, insecure, uh, darkly funny. And so because I had all of those d- 
descriptors, it was a, a different sort of experience to flesh her out. Mm-hmm. I felt like I had a really great idea from the get-go in mm-hmm. a way that I never had before. You know, sometimes, most of the time rather, as an actor, you have the information about what you say mm-hmm. and what you do, but not about what your character deeply believes mm-hmm. inside and what their opinions are. You often have to garner that from the information that you have and try and put it together. Mm-hmm. But because he gave me on a platter who she was, in essence, it was, it's been an entirely different experience. You mentioned that Ruth is not the character that Tilda Swinton played in the movie. And I'm mm. really glad of that because I hated that character so profoundly I didn't understand why she had to have a northern English accent except of course that she was unattractive and she was wearing some really bad fake teeth like yeah it was I was insulted on so many levels and mm. I just didn't see the point of it I didn't understand why mm. she was doing that because there was no background it's a movie mm. okay and she was just one character and also you know just baggage you know that British television and movies often mistreat northern characters mm. But Ruth didn't seem that way. And I loved that she had a backstory. Of course, it's television. There are more episodes. But like she was a B&B owner from Kendall. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. did you contribute to that? I mean, how did a showrunner know about a B&B owner in Kendall? When he first pitched it to me, he said that she's, he was interested in me playing a character that was sort of more like the character that uh, of Minister Mason in the movie. Mm. And I was mm. very excited by that because, mm. uh, because it's, ex- it's an exciting opportunity, you know, to springboard from. And then he started talking about what he would like her to sound like, you know, and then we thought about that for a little bit. And I, you know, of course, I grew up in the Lake District mm-hmm. and my mom is born and bred there and mm-hmm. all of that side of my family and I think that there's a great because he wanted her to be funny uh-huh. I think there's a great warmth mm-hmm. and sort of not naivete but mm-hmm. something that's naturally funny in there because of mm-hmm. the music of the language mm-hmm. at first I thought about should she be Australian was my first idea because mm. I think there's a lot of natural humor in that language too, just the rhythm of it. Yeah. You can say something sort of that's you mean to be innocuous, but it just sounds funny because of the 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 rhythm of the speech, you know? Uh-huh. Um, so actually, that's right. My first idea was that she was Australian. Huh. And then Graham told me that he'd actually written a character that was called The Last Australian. So I was like, oh, well, that's that idea out the window. Thanks very much. <laughs> and I was really quite married to, you know, I was excited about being Australian. So that was out the window. <laughs> so then I thought um, we went back closer to the idea of, because it's in the world of uh-huh. what Tilda did in the film. Yeah. But it's also very specific to me uh-huh. and something that I know very well in the terms of, not just in the terms of like executing it, but, yeah. but what I could add to the character by her sounding like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So then we, we did that, yeah. It's funny, I'm, I'm not, I think of myself as being really good with accents, but I can't tell if Ruth's accent is your natural accent, your, your real voice, as it were, or is that an accent that you kind of created from other influences? Well, it's sort of like, I think it's an amount, I was trying to, you know, where do I put it? And I was taping some of my aunties in Kendall. Oh. 
and listening to them and it's just it's too much it wouldn't work for television like Mm -hmm. it's so like they hit all the notes that there are (laughs) on a stave to hit when they're talking you know I just think it would be too too much on the ear to do it like that so I wanted to soften it a little bit and make it a bit more accessible Mr. Wilfred has gotten us out of worse scrapes before so keep the faith and you just remember that his engine always provides and so it's definitely like I was thinking Westmoreland, Cumberland, Lancashire Uh you know um So definitely around there, uh-huh. around that area, close to Kendall, close yeah. to Kendall. But yes, yeah, she does say that at some point she had a B&B in Kendall, uh-huh. but I didn't want to stick her just specifically there. Right. And also right. she, depending on who she's talking to, she tries to speak a bit, you know, Ooh. with a bit less of an accent or a, if she's more upset, it comes out a bit more. I do have a thing about, you know the way that Northern English people are are kind of often either a figure of fun or evil or whatever in British mm. shows. And I do think that when you go to England, and you see British actors, they're basically, well, at least the white ones anyway, are put into two categories. There's either posh actors or common actors. Like they always mm. get those roles. There are very mm. few people who do both kinds of roles. But um, like, are, is that something that you were aware of? Is that yeah, you know. I mean, it's such a bore, isn't it? It's such a yeah. boring thing that yeah. somebody who doesn't have a standard... I mean, see, even I don't like saying that expression. Yeah, yeah. I don't like saying standard. But um, mm-hmm. anyone who has any sort of regional accent or flavor is shoved into this, via the class system, shoved into yeah. this uh, box of like, like, as you said, you wouldn't see somebody with a really strong uh, regional accent uh, who is playing someone in a position of power right on a tv right. show right or a film it yeah. would they would have to be they couldn't just speak like that with and have it not be addressed mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that couldn't just be a part of the character it's a really boring limitation of england yeah. and one of the reasons why i love america yeah that yeah. i don't feel uh i don't feel flattened or deflated in that way and uh I think Game of Thrones and shows like that have yeah, helped yeah, with having yeah, yeah. more regional sounding voices. Yeah. But it's it's a limitation that we have in England, definitely. And and the the, <laughs> the ridiculous idea that it's tied to intelligence yeah, or integrity yeah, is yeah, yeah. just so basic. One thing I'm really curious about too, um, Ruth is someone who wears a uniform. Uh, mm. In one episode, we see her on her day off and she's in her own clothes then. Very nice, very stylish clothes, I would add too. Um, how much do clothes affect the way you play a role? Did you approach Ruth differently when she was in uniform or from when she was in her own clothes? Um, yes, because, mm. you know, I think Ruth is a person who, she, in this, within this whole story, you don't really see her pondering the existential crisis. <laughs> she's at work and she's got a job to do. Yeah. You know, and she is proud of her job and loves her job. And I think life is better for her on the train than it was before. Mm-hmm. And yeah. her uniform is quite stiff and proper. And she always carries herself the way that she thinks she should and how mm-hmm. she should appear in it. You know, you don't see her sitting down. You don't see her slouching. She's mm-hmm. very proud to wear that uniform, very proud to represent Mr. Wilford, who she considers to be 
the savior of mm-hmm. humanity, which he mm-hmm. kind of is mm-hmm. in our story. Mm-hmm. It's fun that we got you get to see her that one time on her day off. Yeah. You get to see her very relaxed, much more relaxed, you know, with Commander Grey. And I love mm-hmm. that they have they have a really relaxed, familiar relationship with each other because mm-hmm. I think they're from similar backgrounds. Mm-hmm. She's very different around him on her day off than she is around anybody else on the train. She doesn't have to perform for him because I think she sees who he is or who he could have been before the train, before he was this sort of SS guard that he is now. Mm-hmm. I think they connect in a way that takes them both back to who they were before the train. Mm. That's really nice. Um, you were an actor before you came to America, but you came to America to become a better actor, right? That's pretty unusual given like the perceived quality of British acting training, places like RADA. Mm. Is that true? And, and how did it come about? Well, you know, I went to, did musical theatre in Newcastle, mm. at Newcastle College of Performing Arts. And there wasn't really any sort of opportunity up there to do anything. Mm. Um, I had done, started off singing and dancing when I was little, just, you know, mm. started off with a tap class on top of the cricket <laughs> club. It was very much <laughs> Billy Elliot all the way. And then, so it was all dancing, which led to me doing pantomimes. But as you know, pantomimes in England are in Broadway houses, you know, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they're eight shows a week, massive, Mm -hmm. huge production value. And then so when I was doing musical theatre at 18 in Newcastle, uh, when we started, had the like real acting, acting segment Mm -hmm. of the programme, I learned about um, Stanislavski and through him, uh, Lee Strasberg, and that there were two schools to learn the method. And the method really appealed to me in mm. the sense uh, from of the psychological aspect and mm. using your own life to create this, you know, method of using. Mm. And I thought it was, it was very exciting. I, I think I felt very shut out from the south of England. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And very different and separate in a way that we were just talking about in terms mm-hmm. of the accent and the limitations. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt held back and less than mm-hmm. and not good enough, you know. And then mm-hmm. so it was, but it was in finding out about the method that I thought, oh, my God, that sounds really exciting. And then I found out that there were two schools. And then I happened to be going to on holiday to New York with a friend for a few days. <laughs> and so I went into... Lee Strasberg at New York and had an audition, got a place and then just went straight there wow. and bypassed England. Um, the method. So I'm very curious about this. Hmm. What does the method mean to you? Um, to me, it's, you know, you hear a lot of different uh, conflicting, far-fetched theories about what the method is and mm-hmm. how it's used to excuse just ridiculous behavior and whatnot. <laughs> uh, yeah. To me... The best way that I can explain it is the method is something to use when you can't figure it out on your own. Hmm. It's perhaps the writing is not good uh, and you need to, let's say, hit certain emotional states. And if the writing is good, it's in the writing and it does it for you. But if it's Mm -hmm. not, you need to come up with a little trick to use to get you there. So it's all really about imagination. Huh. And it's whatever those 
tips and tricks and those sense memories are that you can lean into your own particular memories and your attachments to whatever those things are. Could be a shoebox. Shoebox <laughs> could do it for you. Mm-hmm. But you imbue that shoebox and you work on all the memories that you have that are associated with it, whatever that may be that it makes you think. And then that's one of your tools in your pocket to go, oh, okay, I need to have a breakdown right here. <laughs> this writing is terrible. I'm not going to be able to do it. Okay, let's go to the shoebox. <laughs> and then you'll be able to do it. It's curious that you kind of link it to imagination, that the more imaginative you are, the more, you know, better work you can do. That's that's really, mm. really interesting. Because it, it only happens inside our heads, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The actor doesn't really have anything else. They might have a prop or something to use in the moment. Mm-hmm. But everything that you're doing only comes from inside your head. The decisions that you make in there, the associations that you make. It's all in your imagination. You're somebody who just, it's very clear, you have a lot going on in your mind. You've prepared, you're you know, making your associations. You have a vision of a character. But, you know, and, and this reminds me of something that one of my co-hosts said a few weeks ago, that actors are both the painter and the paint. You're the mm. instrument mm. and the music. But... You've done all that prep, you get your instrument ready, but then, you know, there are other people who kind of decide what you are going to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the director might come in and say, why did you act like that at the beginning of this conversation when you had to get to that place at the end? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. just so would, there would be like a question or maybe a contradiction of something that you've set up for yourself. Um, and in TV, there might be multiple, would be multiple directors doing mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. Does that ever cause conflict between what you've created and what they tell you to do oh sure sure yeah but then it's a sign that you're not on the same page about what Mm. the what the story is or you know you often might have a a different idea of how it's going to go like you said and then the director comes and and thinks it's something else and then you if you trust them (laughs) you know you can give it do it their way Mm -hmm. um some people are not capable of doing that and you know, they've got, they're willing to do what they have decided that it is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But ideally, in an ideal situation, it's back and forth and it's give and take. And, you know, it's it's alive and moving. And I've had quite a few times on this show where I've been pleasantly surprised and gone, oh, well, I, I kind of thought we all thought it was this. You think it's that? OK, all right, let's try that. And then we're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. It's that. <laughs> You know, that's that's the best the best situation where there is some where there is trust. Again, because I know I, I spent a lot of time with the Americans and, and was particularly fond of it. I still think of Martha. I still think of, um, you know, people in that show. So I'm, I'm curious how actors who, you know, were even closer to them spent much more time than I did. Like when you've been in a role for a while, uh, I guess it was four, four and a bit years on The Americans, um, two seasons so far on Snowpiercer. Like, do they become part of your life? I mean, do you still think of Martha? Is she still with you? Or is that, it's just a job and you you move on to the next thing? Um, At first, when you first stop, for me, Mm -hmm. it's weird to let them go, you know, and to not be them again. I picture Mm -hmm. Martha a lot in my mind. I picture her. Like at work and, but I think I, you know, it, and it's amazing how many people say to me what you just said, June, that they, 
sort of still think about her in the sense that they still worry about her and yeah. they worry that she's all right and they're imagining they're projecting forward to imagine what her life is now you know mm-hmm. and that to me feels pretty incredible and very rewarding to think that we've created somebody that is still affecting people now and mm-hmm. they still have a need to think about or a desire to think about like taking care of her or looking after her in a way protecting right, her right. That's right. pretty incredible. But you do take parts of them with you. But from the Americans, to be honest, I took mostly some Elizabeth Jennings with me. Oh, my. I wow. feel like, yeah, I feel like I got some extra steel from uh-huh. watching that character. Uh-huh. I thought she was just the bee's knees. I loved her strength. Uh-huh. And uh, I think I took some of her strength with me after that job. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Certainly yeah. resilience is there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, is your career where you would like it to be right now? Uh, I'll always take more. I'll always take more. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I consider myself very lucky. Mm. I know, I didn't even think that you could, like, be an actor, for real. Mm. Yeah. I didn't have any real-life example of that around me at all growing up. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, even once I'd come to New York, then it was like, you're, you know, 20 years old, you're taking acting classes and stuff, but yeah. come on, what are the chances? And this is not something that just everybody gets to do. Mm-hmm. I kind of can't believe that I'm getting to do it. And the opportunities that I've had for my first television show, The Americans, to do what it did, mm-hmm. you know, and then I did Broadway and mm-hmm. then I did Shakespeare in the Park. Mm-hmm. And then now I've done other TV shows and now mm-hmm. I'm getting to create this amazing British character on this TV show. Mm-hmm. It's, I feel incredibly lucky and uh, wouldn't be surprised if it all goes away tomorrow. I'm very happy, but I would definitely take more. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Bring Let's it make on. that happen. Um, who's your favorite actor? Is there somebody that you like? Oh, yes. Easy. Daniel Day-Lewis and Meryl Streep. What about them? You know, he is just next level. Mm-hmm. The amount of time he can be on screen without dialogue, just living and behaving. Mm-hmm. The editors must have be like on a part-time schedule that work on his films. <laughs> they're not having to, you know, they're not having to yeah. magic anything. They're right. not having to look through 10 takes to try and find something decent they can use or be <laughs> on the back of his head instead. Uh-huh. And, you know, and be on another character because I think he's probably just delivering. It's like I imagine that it's like he's doing a play. There's no fixing it in post. He's mm-hmm. giving you the whole thing perfectly each time, alive mm-hmm. completely throughout each take all the time mm-hmm. is what it looks like. And what about uh, Ms. Streep? Again, completely alive and always mm-hmm. an, a person mm-hmm. that, it, you know, there's there can be a lot of like... You know, you don't want to be in a situation where you're with actors that are only acting on their lines. Mm. She's never just waiting to talk, you know, just mm-hmm. like him. They're never just waiting to talk. It, mm-hmm. it, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of guts, actually, I think, to be fully alive all the time mm-hmm. in every take. Mm-hmm. It's not that common. You're not mm-hmm. surrounded by that very often. And I imagine it would be quite isolating to be like that all the time. But then again, people are probably at the top of their game that are working with them and are yes. really, yes. really making an effort. Yeah. You should yeah. think anyway, right? Uh, I would hope, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Allison, you are the best. You are. You're my Meryl Streep. You're you're one of my favorite Shut actresses. Up. Yeah, you are. You are. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Before we get into anything else, I just want to note how lovely it was to hear these two elegant voices in conversation. England's accents always sound that way to the American ear, I think. (laughs) There's some complicated thing about us being a colony, we're like a a younger sibling or something. And I was struck by what you and Alison discussed, how the accent, not necessarily her accent, but the accent, as depicted in film or television, can be a way of reifying the existing and complicated class hierarchies in England, which is fitting because Snowpiercer is, among other things, about class. It really is. And as Alison said, this is the first time that she's playing an English character and using an English accent. And I loved hearing how she picked that particular accent um, and how she kind of calibrated it, um, you know, not too sing-songy, but sing-songy a little bit. Um, Brits are really good at identifying accents and from that spotting exactly where people are from, what their class background is. And if you spent your evenings on my couch watching British TV, you would be subject to my rants because any time a Northern character shows up in a show that isn't set in the North, you can pretty much guarantee that they're either a murderer or dumb as dirt or both maybe. (laughs) And Britain's North-South divide, which is in large part, of course, a proxy for class, is a huge, seemingly intractable problem. And as Alison put it so well, it's just boring and... The showrunner Sally Wainwright really is a notable exception to this. She deserves a lot of praise for that. She's made a habit of casting Northern actors, specifically Northern women who spent most of their careers in downmarket Northern soap operas in her shows. And almost without fail, they reveal themselves to be outstanding actors. I'm talking about shows like Scott and Bailey, Gentleman Jack, Happy Valley, Last Tango in Halifax. I recommend all those shows, none of which star Alison Wright, but they're all really great northern shows that don't have people being idiots or murderers. (laughs) I was very excited to hear you and Alison discuss the method. And I I think you were excited to ask her about that. It, It reminded me that acting is just such a strange art. And I think when it's mitigated by the screen, whether it's television or film, you lose some of that sense of weirdness of these are just people pretending (laughs) to be other people. She talked about a cardboard box. Yeah. It sort of sounded metaphorical, but I think it's also kind of literal. Like she's talking about like a physical object that connects her as a performer to 
the psyche of the person she's pretending to inhabit. Am I understanding that correctly? I guess a cardboard box, of course, is a, just an example. Um, but yeah, what a fascinating connection between acting as an act of imagination, that you imbue an object with certain feelings, with certain experiences that you can then call on. What a bizarre, but also apparently incredibly effective method. Um, you know, I do genuinely think that Alison is one of our great, if not our most heralded, but a really wonderful actress. And if that's what she's doing, you know, we should all be buying a cardboard box, right? If, if, it, if it works for her, it works for her. It is hard to imagine as someone who's not a performer, you know, how you, uh, you know, it's one thing to mouth a few lines, but how you summon a whole emotional response mm -hmm. of confusion or dismay or joy or whatever and make it seem convincing. And the idea that somewhere in her mind she has that's stored in some tangible object and then she reaches into it mentally and comes out with this sort of magic act. It's really quite amazing and it's really interesting to hear her talk through that a little bit. Absolutely. And yeah, I think magic really is the right word. I was struck in listening to this conversation by your very clear affection for Alison as a performer. When you're working as a journalist in this capacity, I don't think objectivity is an issue. And in fact, I think your enthusiasm for Allison's work informs the conversation that you had. It helps you, June Thomas, get at <laughs> something in Allison, the subject. Do you think you've learned more about her as a person and as an artist? I do. And I have to say, this is an area where I'm very glad to work at Slate where I don't have to pretend like total neutrality. Um, Alison and I are not buddies. We don't hang out. Um, but I also do feel a connection with her. I like her. I like the way she thinks. I like how she thinks about her work and how she talks about her work. And I also, I admit, and I think maybe this is perhaps at the center of it, I love having a chance to talk with someone from the north of England, um, northern people, tend to be very down to earth, very dry and to be very direct. And I just enjoy getting to do that with someone for my job. Um, I don't get to talk to many other northern people. Uh, and so both getting to do it and getting to do it for work. I mean, it's the ideal scenario, right? And kind of a refreshing change of pace for somebody in the entertainment business generally, a business where so often performers can't shake out of their performative mode and can't stop kind of giving pat answers or sort of just performing the role of actor being interviewed as opposed to just letting themselves actually be interviewed, you know? I don't know. It's funny. It's weird to talk about an interview subject giving authenticity because well isn't that what an interview is but everything is a performance and um i think alison is a very authentic interview subject i mentioned before that i've never seen the americans oh for shame <laughs> and i was wondering if you had any similar embarrassing cultural blind spots that you have Oof. to confess to or whether there's anything on your to watch list or your to read pile at the moment that is just something that you've missed in the years past. Oh my goodness, this reminds me of the game Humiliation uh, from David Lodge's novel Changing Places, which is set in the academic world. Um, one of the characters describes humiliation as follows. The essence of the matter is that each person names a book which he hasn't read, but assumes that others have read and scores a point for every person who has read it. 
I actually recommend this game. It is uh, great it's a, fun. It's a good party game if we ever go to parties again. Exactly. <laughs> we, for your next Zoom party, yeah. uh, Hamlet or To Kill a Mockingbird would be the ultimate humiliation admissions, I think. Um, there's so much that I haven't read or watched or heard. I've become really lazy about movies and music in the last few years. Um, but it's always good to keep something in reserve, too, for a rainy, quarantine day. Um, I haven't watched Deadwood uh, on HBO, despite the fact that I think I'd like it a lot. So maybe next week, who knows? <laughs> You've mentioned the Americans, but is there something that you already have started tackling in quarantine times? There is not something specific that I've started tackling, although there's plenty that I have not seen. But what I think I'm going to do is I'm finally going to cave to peer pressure and subscribe to the Criterion channel and catch up on some of the kind of seminal works of cinema, you know, from the history of the medium. There's just so much that I haven't seen. I had a weird itch the other day to watch the movie Shortcuts, Robert Altman's movie, which is one of my oh, favorite yeah. movies. Yeah. And that's only available on Criterion. And I thought, you know what, I should just subscribe and I should watch Shortcuts and I should watch Nashville and I should watch MASH. And I should watch Three Women and I should just sort of bone up on Altman and, you know, all of the other great filmmakers because, I mean, there's a lot I haven't seen. If I were going to play a round of David Lodge's <laughs> Humiliation, I think that where I would begin is by admitting that I have never seen the movie Pulp Fiction. There's really a lot I have to catch up on. When this is finally over, we'll have no excuses Exactly. Again. exactly. We'll all have read Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's a painful one for me. As a former American <laughs> studies major who never got past like maybe page 50, that's one that's really hanging over my head. So one of the things we'd love to do with this show is to help solve your creative problems, listeners. So if you have any questions at all about the creative process, whether you're trying to write a novel or a postcard to a friend, or maybe you want to write more elegant code, please send them to working at slate.com. And if and when we can, we'll put those questions to our guests. And if you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Alison Wright for being our guest this week, and enormous thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation I had with Sheena Wagstaff, a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Thanks for listening. Now, get back to work. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.